Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the second installment of Douglas Wilson's No Quarter November live Q&A. Be sure to check out the No Quarter November page now on Canon Plus. Welcome to No Quarter November Live, the Q&A installment number two. We're glad that you joined us today. And uh, I'll remind you, as did last time, that there are free Kindles going out this week. Um, The two that are available this week are Joy at the End of the Tether and Radiant, uh, available now. Uh, All of this is posted at the end of your blog every every time you post, I think. So uh, those are the two available Kindles. Uh, we all have very exciting news that you um, are doing a documentary called How to Save the World. In 11 easy steps. <laughs> easy. That's all you need. <laughs> 11 easy steps. Yes. Nicely Simple packaged. Simple steps. Nicely packaged. Simple. Not easy. Not easy. Simple right. steps. All right. Tell us just a, a bit about the documentary. Why this documentary? Why now? Uh, the documentary is addressing the collapse or disintegration of the liberal secular order that we've seen in real time over the last couple of years. It's been going on for a while since the sixties, really. Uh, well, it's been going on since Rousseau, but it's, it's always, Rousseau. it's always been going since Adam and Eve. Um, <laughs> and Rousseau was there. <laughs> yeah. Rousseau is the snake in the garden. <laughs> um, so basically in, in the West, the disintegration is largely um, been happening since the 18th century, and it's now all coming to a, a crescendo in our time. And Christians have to do better than simply want to go back 20 years. Yeah. Uh, we 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 just wanted to go from stage four cancer to stage three cancer, um, and that's not a solution. Okay, the solution is in the documentary, which you can access because it's going up on Canon Plus. It will be available um, the 21st, November 21st, that is. And if you're not a Canon Plus subscriber, you can be one this month for free with the promo code NQNQ, which means you also get access to this documentary. For free. For free. So um, go check all that out. So um, no quarter November live. Installment number two, you've written two articles this week. Right. Um, the first one, you just brought the receipts. You know, you you really came with the facts right. um, saying, you know, we're in this modern kind of dust up about Christian nationalism and a Christian nation. And people are uh, there, there's some people that are concerned about the term. I find it interesting that I think many conservative evangelicals in America are actually warming up to the term. Uh, there's mm-hmm. going to be some kooks involved, of course, right. but mm-hmm. I do think they're kind of going to be outliers. I think this is going to be something that conservative Christians are sympathetic to yeah. because they see the nonsense that's going on. Right. I think that that's the case. If you said, hey, let's start a Christian nationalism movement 15 years ago, a lot of mainstream conservative evangelicals, would have that would have left them cold because they would say at the time, well, I think that's kooky. Only kooks were, are going to go for that. But the kooks have taken over. The kooks are running the country now, and they're running the country into the ground. And a lot of, a lot of evangelical Christians who thought that 
we could sort of manage things and be decent, respectable folks without Jesus are discovering that we can't be Mm -hmm. decent, respectable folks without Jesus. Um, And so if you say, well, let's turn to Christ as a people, you know, all of Judea went out to be baptized by John the Baptist. That was a national reformation. There was a national reformation uh, under Josiah. So this is something evangelicals particularly need to learn, which is that conversion is not just something that happens to individuals. Happened in, it happened to Nineveh, for example. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. From the king from the king on down, uh, it happened to Nineveh. And if it happened to Nineveh, why not here? Right? Nineveh was a godless uh, pagan state, and they repented. America is a Christian nation. We're a backslidden Christian nation, is the way I put it. We at our founding, we were a Christian nation. We're a backslidden Christian nation now. Some portions of our country would be more accurately called apostate. You know, they, they've rejected the whole thing. But if you go through the Old Testament, there are plenty of times where things were way worse. Mm-hmm. Is it is it Mark David Hall that wrote, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Yeah. The author name. Yeah. So that would be a resource that just has a lot of facts in it. You cited a number of facts, including 50 of the 55 men at the Constitutional Convention were Orthodox Christians. Right. Um, you mentioned a Supreme Court case in the late 1800s. Yeah, 1892. And it was exquisitely named. The court case was exquisitely <laughs> named. It was Holy Trinity versus the United States. <laughs> so uh, what that was about was there was a law that prohibited hiring um, foreigners. And there was a church, I think in New York, that called a British minister. And the United States brought said that's against the law and the name of the church was Holy Trinity and they fought it all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court uh, stood with the church said the church could hire a Brit minister if they wanted so they settled that part of it but then they said among other things we are a Christian nation we're a Christian people and then in defense of that fact they went all the way back to Christopher Columbus and the fundamental orders of Connecticut, and just sort of laid out the history of the United States up till 1892. And and the thing that I point out is I was born in 1953, which meant that uh, that 61 years, that Supreme Court decision was 61 years from the day I was born. And I was 60, on the day I was born, I was 62 years from the Obergefell decision. So that decision was yesterday. Yeah. Right. Americans think that that kind of length of time is a long time, but it really isn't. Mm-hmm. You turn, you just turn one page in your old Testament and you're, you're dealing with 200 years, um, the length of time, the entire history of our nation. Right. As we're trying to establish this idea, um, I've said, look, it's not really about, um, whether we're going to become a Christian nation or not. We're a nation that is one nation under God. Uh, he's on our money. That very phrase is on our money. One nation under God. It's in our pledge. One nation under God. And I know that came later. Nevertheless, we all say the pledge. And it came is- later for a reason. It came later for a reason because one of the reasons was that evangelicals were fighting to get under God put into the Pledge of Allegiance. It wasn't done in a spasm. Mm-hmm. It was it was done because of the work of Christians. Right. Uh, go into the legislative chambers all across our land. You're going to find his name carved in stone. 
in the legislative halls. Right. So um, we're just saying, hey, look, this is a fact. I actually, I found an article, Pew Research just did a recent study. They said in 1972, which is only 50 years ago, that 90% of the U.S. population identified as Christian or Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, they actually charted that out. They just did a study in 2020 where they say that number is down to 64%. Right. All right. But we're still at 60. Still overwhelming. This is a majority. Um, and I, this is, seems to be the pertinent point. As um, Pew actually said, if the trend keeps up, say by like 2070, I think, that Christians will not be the majority anymore. Mm-hmm. So we really are a backslidden nation. Right. Um, but it seems that America's ministers, the ministers of Christ throughout our land, um, are missing a key point about right. kind of where they're situated as prophets um, in this particular time. Do right. you see that? Do you have anything to yeah. say to that? I, th- I think that. Uh, evangelical um, ministry, by and large, has for many decades pulled the punch. So we we have been preaching for decades at individuals, and we've been getting individual results, but we've not been testifying before kings. We we um, now we you don't want uh, to you don't want to try to work for. Smith's conversion or Jones's com- uh, conversion by passing a law, getting a law passed through Congress. That, that's you know you preach the gospel on the streets and in the soup kitchens and um, college campuses. You you preach the gospel to individuals, but you also do what Paul did before Agrippa, as you testify and mm-hmm. say, "I wish that all men were like I I am, mm-hmm. except for these chains." And what would we do if the king and the Parliament and Congress and the president said, you're right. I need to acknowledge the God of heaven. I need to kiss the sun lest he be angry. And then he turned to evangelical pastors and said, what should I do now? (laughs) And they would all say together, and all God's people said, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, we take this set up. Our our specific situation is interesting because we do have all of this Christianity and our heritage and presently even the majority of the people in this land are Christians. Every single president that we've ever had has been baptized in the triune name. Right. As, as, you know, this is where we're at. Um, but as we're as we're falling away, I found, find there is a strand. I was in the a part of the Southern Baptist Convention for a long time. Uh, Fifty thousand churches in the United States of America. Fifteen million people. The president lobbies. The people lobby the Southern Baptist Convention. The vice president a few years back goes and speaks at the convention, right? So there is a stripe of American evangelical minister that here's what you say. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to participate in this big beast that is really become pragmatic because I I want to do this kind of thing you're talking about. And then there's a kind of minister that's more of the um, fallen into the pietism that just doesn't get Mm -hmm. involved like he should get involved. But it strikes me, here we are, you write, you've done this documentary, you've written a book, Gash saith it. You're you're not really advocating for this kind of big time, let me get the president to pay attention to me. Or let's get invited to the prayer breakfast. Or let's get invited to the prayer breakfast. You're this county before country idea, the civilizations that we must build to change the world. Speak to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So there's the quietist or the pietist, uh, the Amish and the Mennonite and the uh separatist. Let's just um Let's detach and and just mind our own business. There's that strand. Um, and then there is what you referred to, 
where there's there's a power and influence and and politicians curry favor with you and they they want to um, they want to have access to your people. Uh, and the danger there is that the church becomes one more lobbying organization like the NRA or Big Tobacco or we don't want we don't want our message to be I'm evangelical and I vote. Okay? Mm-hmm. We want it to be to the politicians we're evangelical and we talk to God. So so it's um the you we should be wanting the church and particularly the mouthpiece of the church which would be the preachers who should be the prophets. They they should be the ones speaking God's truth to the world. We want them to say, thus saith the Lord. So what what's our authority for speaking to them? When we say, no, you can't have two guys marry. No, you can't chop babies up into pieces. Well, it, I want an argument stronger than, and I've got 15 million people in my denomination who tend to think that same way. That's not strong enough, right? It needs to be God told Moses on Mount Sinai, we're not allowed to do that. The red wave that was predicted just uh, was more of a red mirage. Well, more of a red ripple because um, it might we the it's still possible that the Republicans will gain control of the House and the Senate, but if they do, it'll be a squeaker, mm-hmm. right? So uh, just just gaining the House by a, a, a few seats, and it hasn't happened yet. And if we get the Senate, it'll be probably because of Georgia in the runoff election, where approximately $10 billion are going to be spent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> man, Herschel Walker, that poor man. <laughs> yeah. So you have this runoff election in Georgia. The control of the U.S. Senate is going to ride on that quite possibly. And then uh, megabucks is going to, will be spent there. So, But the point is that you might get red control of the Senate and the House. That's, that's still a possibility. But it was eked out. Right. It was just a squeaker. You mentioned in one of your articles, this is whatever this is, it's not a repudiation of crown of clown world. Right. And so what does that say to um, Christians, up and coming Christians, say a guy's 25 years old, lives in Pennsylvania, um, married, second kid on the way. He's looking around. He's got a church. Um, you know, they're keeping Jesus center in the center. They're singing modern day hymns. Their church probably closed too long for COVID, but you know they kind of feel bad about it. Right? He's just in that. But here he is. There, there wasn't this big, huge repudiation of clown right. world. Clown world appears to be kind of where we're going to be. What's the message to him? Like, should I stay or should I go? I want to influence culture. What does he need to do? Yeah, th- I think the message is clown world is tougher than we thought. So. It, if someone is centered in in biblical thinking and they they've got a biblical worldview and they they they've got common sense and they look at clown world, they they think surely surely this is obvious to everyone. Surely, they're not going to um, elect Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Sure, and then they do. So when that that kind of thing happens. That shouldn't make us think, oh, it's useless. I think it should be, um, this is going to be a long, hard slog. We're going to have to fight longer and harder mm-hmm. than we thought we were going to have to fight. But we made good gains. Um, 
a lot of Christians are now openly saying things they should have been saying 20 years ago and weren't, mm. but they're now they're saying them now. And I think uh, those Christians who've been in the trenches for years saying these things and been uh, reviled for saying them, called all kinds of names for saying them, shouldn't be bitter at the at the recent recruits. There's a lot of people coming coming on board. I think we should welcome them with op- open arms. Better late than never. And don't that, be Adonisist. This don't, don't be Adonisist. Um, all right. Related to this, we got questions coming in. Here they are. Do you think the results on Tuesday are a wet blanket on all this Christian nationalism stuff? Oh no, no. So um, it it's a. I think it's a testimony to how. Um, what a screaming need we have for Christians to articulate in a self-confident way, which is actually a God-confident way, mm-hmm. that um, that this is what we need to do. This is the, right. uh, so. If someone says, "Well, I'm not a I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Christian nationalist," I'd say, "Well, what kind of nationalist are you then? You're some kind of nationalist, right? Do you pay taxes?" Right. Do you have a driver's license? Do you, you're some kind of nationalist. What kind are you? Well, <laughs> are you the kind that likes to sing God bless America land that I love? Yeah. So I, I think we need to say we're a nation. We're in this mess. We're in this mess as a nation. And the only way out of this mess is Christ. Yeah. And you put all that together and that's Christian nationalism. Yeah. I've wondered um, even you know where this question comes from, people think short term often. If you step back and you think of the hey, fifty years ago, ninety percent Christians, presently sixty, whatever, right. and in the future, it, it's on a downward trend, and it's a long ride, it's a long slope, and the leaders that we elect are our representatives. They're right. actually they actually represent us. Well, they represent us accurately. Yeah. That's the key. It's like this the, to realize God's actually dealing with us, and here's right. here's a good picture of what what we right. are. But when you look at the trend lines, one of the things, uh, if, you, if you're friends with farmers uh, and you, you go to the coffee joint where they hang out before they go work in the fields early in the morning, you're out there at six in the morning. And it's, let's say it's rained for three days. The farmers are going to say, if this keeps up, we're ruined. <laughs> right? Because if they see the trend line. Three days, if we have 17 days, like the last three mm-hmm. days, we're ruined. And then if you have three days of no rain, if this keeps up, we're ruined. David, <laughs> Goliath's on the field again. If this keeps up. If, if this keeps up, we're ruined. And I think, well, look, um, look at human history. How many ups and downs have there been in human history? Read the Old Testament. L- read the history of Judah. All right, you have stalwarts like Asa and Josiah and Hezekiah and David. And you've got these high points, and some of them glorious high points. Uh, Jehoshaphat, a glorious high point. One of the greatest moments in the Old Testament is when Josiah sent the choir out in front of the army. So you've got these glory, and, but then you've got these abysmal um, valleys, these chasms, these canyons, uh, child sacrifice, children being thrown to uh, pass through the fire to Molech. And um, so th- the, the discrepancy between where we are now and where we would like to be is a discrepancy that has existed in human history times without number yeah. right and and Christians need to read a book and get, <laughs> get get some historical perspective because we always think I'm in the crisis now 
And if this keeps up for three more days, we're ruined. If this keeps up for 10 more days, we're ruined. But what faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God delivers his people. All right, here's another one. Can you weigh in on the Trump versus DeSantis war that's brewing? <laughs> yes. I, I've got a couple of things to say about that. Um, the much, as I say in the article, the much ballyhooed wet, red wave did not occur. It, it might get some good, um, we might get the House, might get the Senate, still don't know. But it wasn't a tsunami. It wasn't that. But the one place where there was a significant red wave was in Florida uh, with the election, re-election of uh, Governor DeSantis. Now, I saw Trump complaining, and I've not gone and checked his math. I saw Trump complaining about how people were saying this is a repudiation of Trump's ways. And he, he was saying, what are you talking about? I forget the exact number, but uh, overwhelmingly, the, guy, the people I endorsed won. And the, uh, I only had a handful of losses out of the people I endorsed. What are you talking about? How's this a repudiation? It's a, so however much of a point he might have on that, the to to give DeSantis the back of your hand for no other reason than that he's a likely rival in the uh, in the primaries was not a class move. It was just, and I think uh, did Trump a big disservice. I think it was counterproductive. Basically, uh, Trump Trump has diehard supporters, right? They're, they're the people who would just go over a cliff for him. But Trump also had, unbeknownst to the mainstream media, he also had a lot of people who were grudgingly appreciative of the good things he did and were very aware of his vulnerabilities, very aware of his um, failings. And his thin-skinnedness is one of those uh, one of those places where he needs message control and someone to, you know, um, he needs a better set of advisors um, to to go after DeSantis like that instead of warmly congratulating him uh, was just not a classy move and not a good not a good move not a good look at all. Here's another: Jesus wasn't a social or political activist, nor the disciples. They called folks to repent. Why all this Christian nationalism talk? Because they kept centered on the gospel. That's why all three of them were executed. <laughs> so I, I, honestly, I'd say to you gospel-centered evangelicals, why don't you preach the gospel and only the gospel in a way as to get you arrested? <laughs> and then you can talk to me about Peter and Paul and Jesus. Speak, this this um, may be related. Another question came in. Um, I used to shepherd my family towards a nine marks Baptist conviction. I've changed my view. Any recommendations and how I should shepherd my family now? Oh, golly. Um, so I think the way you should shepherd your family now is um, start catechizing your children around the dinner table. Start teaching your children. Um, and by catechizing, I don't mean make them eat a bowl of catechetical gravel. Uh, I mean, um, I mean, talk about the things of God around the dinner table. Use the the basic 
uh, historic Christian faith, Westminster Shorter Catechism, as either launching point of discussion. But talk talk with your kids, instruct them when you rise up, when you walk along the road, get them out of the government schools. Uh, that's a discipleship program. And so if they're enrolled in a discipleship program that is not discipling them in the ways of Yahweh, and get them out and um, talk about the things of God, get them in a Christian school or homeschool them. Um, that's basically, that's what the average Christian layperson ought to be doing is invest. You've got a little congregation right there. Start there. Um, and I'd say this person is addressing the question to you and me, of course, they must know my background. Um, I know Mark Dever. I know Jonathan Lehman. I've been to Capitol Hill Baptist church in Washington, DC, and I think they're good brothers in the Lord. So, uh, you need to know all of that. They preach the Bible and uh, mm -hmm. sing lovely songs and have a lovely congregation there. If you've changed your convictions, you, uh, everyone, many people know I changed mine. If you change your convictions, I know that Mark would say this. If you become pedo Baptist in your thinking, if you're becoming kind of, if you had this corporate family thing going on, then you want to get to a church that believes that, that teaches that that's going to be one step. Um, and then in addition to the catechism, what Duck's talking about, that shift is a big shift. Um, you made that shift at some point in life, mm -hmm. but it's a worldview thing. It's 1993, 1993. Yeah. The kind of thing you don't forget. I appreciate it. You've told me <laughs> some of your theological transitions were like walking through a meadow. Right. Postmillennialism was fun. Others yeah. were like putting your hand through a meat grinder. <laughs> right. And that was pedo baptism. So, uh, right. So um, mine was very similar. And uh, so I think that question, no, that there would be a lot there. Doug's published uh, several good books on that. Um, I've got a book at Canon Press coming out sometime in this month, I think, on this topic. There's tons of stuff to read and um, take time as you make that particular transition. But you're going to want to get to a church that uh, believes the same. And yeah, make the covenant your things. study. Make the covenant your study and then live it. Yep. All right. Um, Doug, many in my congregation have been promoting the glories of adoption. I love it, but I've also seen them go wrong. What are some cautions you would have for families while not wanting to quench what seems to be a good and right thing? I do think it's a good and right thing, but it ought not to be done for romantic or sentimental reasons. Okay. Uh, adoption is not a Hallmark movie. It just, uh, and I've, I've seen, I've seen wonderful things. Uh, accomplished through adoptions. And I've seen some heartbreaking stories. Uh, and you, you can't simply, um, babies aren't interchangeable parts. It's, it's not like, you, it's not like your carburetor goes out and you can order another carburetor and it just goes in the car. Um, there are uh, sometimes the, the, the things that are tracked into your family are um, you know, uh, if you adopt a crack cocaine baby or uh, adopt a baby with fetal alcohol syndrome and things like that, they're, they're, the fact that they're adopted into a Christian family does not remove the challenges. So I would say um, I would encourage parents who want to adopt children. I think adopting children out of orphanages is glorious and wonderful. True religion is to take care of widows and orphans and their affliction keep yourself unstained from the world. So amen, but do it in a clear headed, hard headed way. Uh, don't, don't do it um, in an emotional spasm. Like, like you've had, mm -hmm. you've had four kids and your wife started feeling like she wanted to have a baby around again. 
it's uh, babies aren't designer um, accessories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd amen everything you said, and uh, particularly the glories, you know, true and pure religion. Um, but it's interesting that the adoption thing has happened amid um, kind of especially American evangelicals misunderstanding of uh, the natural family, natural ties, these kinds mm-hmm. of things. I was speaking to a brother here um, and he just put it so well when he said, you know, you're the natural children are significant. The, your face, the face of husband and wife, father and mother are implanted on that child testifying to you that you must never part. Right. Like it's just it's this thing. And so when you are in an adoption situation, there are there were natural ties before. Right. And uh, again, this is a necessity. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. Right. And praise God, it's a wonderful ministry. And that is what it is. It's the, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. And those previous natural ties, not all of them go away. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Here's another. Um, and I we're shifting gears. It's lovely to shift gears when questions come in. So here you go. Another another ballpark. If you could give Trump one piece of advice, what would it be? And if you could give DeSantis one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say, um, I would say the same bit of advice. To both of them, I would say work it out. Okay, work it out. Um, where uh, I, I would say that Trump has been wronged in so many ways, so many times that he just gets exasperated and he just says things. Um, and I think for him to work it out, he needs to control his outbursts. He he just can't just can't do that. Um, with going into this next season, when Trump was doing his thing the first time in 2016, it was, uh, there were no, he was a, it was a fresh new thing. We didn't have all, you know, um, and everything, man, this is different. And they went for it and there, some good things came out of it. Roe going down was, I'll be forever grateful to, to Trump for keeping his promise on the Supreme Court justices. That, that was just a glorious thing um but he needs to realize that we have more options now right so uh desantis learned some things i think he took more than a couple of pages out of trump's playbook and implemented them with better discipline and message control and i think that um hats i think trump should be saying uh, kudos, hats off to him, and work it out. Work, you know, don't have a bloodbath in the, don't have a pl- primary bloodbath. Mm-hmm. And I would say to, to DeSantis the same thing. Uh, so far, DeSantis in this feud has behaved himself, and I would urge him to continue. Last question. Um, the spirit of no quarter November. What if I hate conflict? <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> if you hate conflict, we're coming after you. <laughs> if you hate conflict, you're going to have some. I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> um, so it basically, it, I think it was Tolstoy, not Tolstoy, maybe Trotsky, one of those T Russians. Um, uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And you may not like conflict, but conflict likes you. And you might be the sweetest evangelical who ever lived. And the mantra of evangelicalism is thou shalt be nice. 
Uh, and people say that we here in Moscow are, you know, we actively try to get the chimps jumping and we, you know, we try to do that sort of thing. And, and it somehow uh, by using expressions like that, <laughs> <laughs> but um, who's the Baker uh, Phillips in Colorado, the uh -huh. Baker, he, he appears to be the nicest guy in the world. Right. And they're, and they uh, are gunning for him. They, they won't give up coming after him legally. You have to understand that these battles have nothing to do with tone, nothing to do with tone. It has to do with our allegiance to Jesus Christ and our refusal to back away from that. Now, the, the it's not that tone is irrelevant, because we have we've adopted the tone that we not because we have a personality that can't help it, but because we found it to be a very effective weapon. And you pick up the weapon when you need it, and you put it. You hang it back up when you're done. When the battle's over, you don't use the weapon all the time. But um, the tone is a weapon, and the, one of the reasons people object to it so loudly is because it's an effective weapon. So I would say to this gentleman, uh, if you are going to be in the conflict anyhow, wouldn't you like to be armed? If you're going to be in the conflict any, anyhow, and you're going to be, they're coming for all of us. Uh, uh, when we get hauled off to the Happy Meadows re-education camp, uh, all the sweet Christians are going to be in the boxcar ahead of us and the nice Christians in the boxcar <laughs> be, behind us. And we can have debates in the barracks over whose fault this was. And it wasn't our fault. They're the ones doing it. The, the, these people are the, I, I call it totalitolerance. This totalitolerance is gunning for all of us. And that means the conflict is inevitable, and it matters not that you don't like it. Yeah. And I'd add, I mean, you can just kind of go back to Genesis 3.15 and say, hey, God has put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So Antithesis uh, is the key to human history. Human history is all about the, the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for No Quarter November Live Part 2. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. We won't be here the week after that because it's Thanksgiving. Right. So thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full No Quarter November page on Canon Plus. Plus.